0: Not too many dentists moonlight as hitmen. But then again, not too many dentists are like Glennon Engelman. If you want to hear more episodes like these, follow Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology and urology behind heartless medical killers. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of medical malpractice, as well as sexual and violent situations that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Some professions aren't made for multitasking. Dentistry, for example, requires a significant amount of precision and focus, and people will pay top dollar for undivided expert attention. After all, No one wants a distracted doctor performing their root canal. But what if a dentist's preoccupation was about more than just upcoming appointments or evening plans? What if they were actually plotting a bomb detonation? For Dr. Glennon Engelman's patients, this should have been a very real concern. But none of them suspected that the man drilling at their teeth was a vicious killer. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from ParCast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to, do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies each week on medical murders we'll investigate those who decided to kill we'll explore the specifics of how they operate not just on their patients but within their own minds examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers i'm Alastair murden and i'm joined by
1: dr david kipper md hi everyone it's dr kipper And very happy to be here to assist Alistair with some medical insight into the fascinating case of Dr. Glennon Engelman, a dentist that went far beyond filling cavities.
0: You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Parkar shows for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Glennon Engelman, a St. Louis dentist who moonlighted as a hitman. For Engelman, murder for money electrified the monotony of his day job. Today, we'll look at Engelmann's early years as a dentist and his initial attraction to contract killing, which was spawned by a single scheme with his ex-wife. In the 1960s and 70s, using women to entrap his victims became his MO. Next time, we'll follow how Engelman's greed, infidelity and ego turned his closest confidants against him We'll also explore Engelman's final murders, which led to his capture and imprisonment. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget
2: dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight
0: New season out on Spotify soon. 59-year-old Sophie Barrera had no idea that January 14th, 1980 was her last day on Earth. If she'd known, she might not have spent the whole day working at the dental lab. But enjoyment was the last thing on her mind. Months earlier, someone had planted a bomb outside her home in St. Louis, Missouri. Ever since, she'd lived in fear that whoever it was would try to kill her again, and worse, the next time, they'd be successful. Sadly, Sophie's dread was well warranted. At 4.45pm on January 14th, Sophie ended her workday and headed to her red Ford Pinto, which was parked behind her dental lab. As she got in the driver's seat, she didn't notice the small piece of wood with a button jammed underneath the front left tire. It was placed carefully so that when the car rolled back, it would detonate a bomb waiting under her seat. Sure enough, Sophie started the ignition, put the Pinto into reverse and set off the explosive. The blast blew apart the front of the car, shattered nearby windows, and hurled the steering wheel onto the roof of a six-story building next door. But the vehicle's carnage was only half of it. Bits of Sophie's body had also
1: flown in all directions. This explosion completely destroyed the lower half of Sophie's body. Death from a bomb detonation can come in many forms, but boils down to massive bleeding or blood loss caused from major internal and external injury. In Sophie's case, her legs took the brunt of the impact, and it's likely they were traumatically amputated by the force of the bomb's blast and flying metal shrapnel of the exploding car. Traumatic amputation is when a body part is accidentally torn and separated, violently detached from the rest of the body. This would have caused a severing of Sophie's femoral artery, the major blood channel to the leg. This alone would have caused a quick death from bleeding out. Technically speaking, this is death from exsanguination, which means severe and fatal blood loss. Sophie died violently, but instantly. This manner of death made
0: two things clear about the killer. For one, whoever it was wanted to be sure Sophie died. They were also deeply angry with her. And nobody was more irate at Sophie than Glennon Engelman, a St. Louis dentist Sophie had taken to court over unpaid debts. But it seemed she had crossed the wrong dentist. Sophie wasn't Engelman's first victim. She was his seventh. His first murder happened just over two decades prior. Many question whether killers are born or made, and Glennon Engelman's early history doesn't help much in answering that question. But one thing is certain. Before he started offing people, Glennon Engelman loved making pawns of them. After a stint at the Army Air Corps in the late 1940s, Engelman enrolled in a dentistry program at Washington University in St. Louis around 1950. It was here he perfected his womanizing ways, diverting him from his boring coursework. But his game as a so-called player wasn't without its struggles. Though Engelman was only in his early 20s, he'd begun losing his hair. And his doe-faced, pug-nosed appearance didn't exactly draw in female attention, nor did his arrogance. However, Engelman had something a lot of other guys his age didn't. Charisma. That was what Ruthie, First, noticed about him. Ruthie was said to be a regular party girl who frequented bars around campus, and Engelman was unlike any man she'd ever dated. He was quick to charm her, wielding his sexual power like a hypnotic drug. She fell for him fast, and the two were married by 1953 when Engelman was 26. Despite this, the newlyweds never lived together. Ruthie lived with some students in female-only housing, while Engelman continued to live with his mother. And he conveyed no interest in changing that. After all, he didn't have to pay any rent. That lack of financial responsibility was particularly important to Engelman in the years after he left college, as he started his own dental practice. Without monthly rent costs, he was able to provide good discounts to patients as he built up his client base on the south side of St. Louis, Missouri. But while his nature seemed charitable, his attitude didn't match. Though he depended on his mother for room and board, he boasted about his self-reliance. And even though a vast majority of his clients were low-income, he called people on welfare freeloaders. He was also an avowed racist, once investigated by the St. Louis Civil Rights Commission for refusing care to a black woman. At the same time, he and his mother took in a Mexican family, the Mirandas, providing them housing and jobs. Engelman even trained two of the Miranda girls as dental assistants. These contradictions revealed Engelman's true character. Simply put, he made his own rules and he wasn't afraid to vocalize them. Somehow, the townspeople of St. Louis still took a general liking to him. He may have been opinionated, but his flexible prices and walk-in welcome appointment policies kept patients coming back. Though this didn't mean much to him, nor did the decent salary he made. Like his college courses, the mediocrity of his day-to-day life bored him. And when he wanted an escape, he followed his wild libido. Even though he was married to Ruthie, Engelman refused to give up his sex capades. When his wife didn't satisfy him, he simply took his voracious appetite elsewhere. And Ruthie wasn't much better. The two cheated on each other consistently, a habit that didn't support their relationship. Soon, they divorced amicably in 1956 when Engelman was 29. It had been only three years. But it wasn't all bad news for Engelman, because he'd been able to keep Ruthie in his life as a friend. They continued sleeping together, and he even provided her free dental care. Even when Ruthie remarried about a year after their split, Engelman had an urge to protect and provide for her. And he decided that the best way to do that would be to kill Ruthie's new beau. With her consent, of course. On December 17, 1958, Ruthie's husband of six months, James Bullock, headed out for his night classes at St. Louis University. It was around 7pm. At 7.37pm, Bullock's corpse was discovered in an alley behind the City Art Museum. He'd been shot... Once in the chest with a shotgun and twice in the head and once in the left shoulder
1: with a .22-caliber pistol. Either injury might have been enough to kill Bullock. A shotgun blast of birdshot can do some real damage. When fired, the pellets burst from the shotgun shell and spread outward to cover a large wide area. If fired from a close enough distance, birdshot to the chest could cause fatal internal bleeding if the heart was nicked or punctured. Death from suffocation could also occur if these pellets managed to pierce the lungs, causing them to deflate and collapse. A second shot to the head was really a seal on the deal. The wounds here definitely revealed that the murderer wanted to be sure Bullock died. The use of two different weapons was
0: strange. It implied the murder was premeditated, But the St. Louis police were thrown off by the fact that the alley was a known meeting spot for gay men. They assumed Bullock had been having an affair and was murdered by his lover or an angry bigot. This theory dominated the investigation, bringing detectives to a dead end rather quickly, which was lucky for Engelman. If they dug even a little deeper, some revealing evidence might have caught their attention like the $64,000 insurance payout Ruthie collected on her dead spouse, or the continuing affair she had with her ex-husband, Glennon Engelman. Perhaps they would have even noticed that $20,000 from Bullock's insurance payout was directly invested into a project of Engelman's. Every clue in the Bullock case led back to Glennon Engelman, but it would take years before anyone put them all together coming up engelman devises his second kill this episode
2: is brought to you by anytime fitness forget dark alleys and cemeteries for some the gym is the scariest place of all but it doesn't have to be With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
0: Now, back to the story. In the late 1950s, 31-year-old dentist Glennon Engelman discovered that crime did pay. Though his dental practice provided a steady and consistent income, it was hardly thrilling. And Engelman's apathy towards his lackluster day job appeared to leave him hungry for reckless affairs and criminal schemes. His first murder in December 1958 only further escalated his dark desires. But for several years, he didn't act on them. Instead, he found himself a new girlfriend, She was a librarian named Ida, and shortly after his divorce from Ruthie, Engelman married her. But the relationship was quickly tainted by Engelman's lust for other women, and it didn't take long before he decided that one in particular would be the key to his next plot. It was Ida's 18-year-old niece, Sandy, who caught Engelman's wandering eye. Her innocence made her easy prey for Engelman. When he put the moves on her, she swooned at his charms. His advances were her first foray into her sexuality. Soon, Sandy began frequenting his office to do clerical work, which made a good cover story for their regular sexual meetings. With his confidence bolstered by his secret affair, Engelman decided it was time to put the savings from his first murder to good use. He invested in a drag racing strip outside of St. Louis, thinking it would be a lucrative way to branch out of dental care. But his expectations had been ill-informed. He quickly sunk under construction and operating costs, losing every last cent of the $20,000 he'd made off of Steve Bullock's murder. But Engelman couldn't just let his bold business venture lead nowhere. He wanted to make it worth his while. So he decided to secure himself another life insurance payout. However, this time, he couldn't use his ex-wife Ruthie to get it. She didn't have a husband he wanted dead. So, he turned to Sandy, his teenage lover. Sandy apparently didn't take much prodding from Engelman. She'd experienced his angry outbursts and knew how cruel he could be when she didn't agree with him and she wanted his love. So when Engelmann told her to flirt with one of the workers at the drag strip, a young 20-something named Eric Fry, she did. It didn't take long for Fry to fall for her sexually adventurous tactics. The two courted briefly and married in September 1962. Within three months, Sandy purchased the maximum amount of life insurance available on her new husband his $25,000 policy
1: would be worth nearly a quarter of a million dollars in modern currency. In the 1960s, life insurance was offered only as a whole life policy, which covered the applicant for their whole life, whereas term life insurance options, which provided coverage for only a specified number of years, came many years later. Because of Frey's age and his relatively clean bill of health, he was easy to insure. Life insurance companies often require medical exams to uncover previous conditions to assess their risk. These measures are taken to identify health risks that could cost carriers money, and some common red flags they look for are obesity, whether someone smokes, and if someone has a history of substance abuse or mental illness. Life insurance companies will review the patient's records from their own doctors but we'll have a doctor from their insurance company perform the examination. Eric Fry seemed to be the perfect specimen,
0: young, active, and healthy. His large policy pleased Engelman, and in the late summer of 1963, he decided it was time to pounce. Fry and Sandy had been married almost a year when Engelman asked Fry to help him with a big project out on the drag strip. There was an old well on the property that Engelman wanted to seal with dynamite. Fry agreed. His stint in the military made him proud, and he relished the opportunity to impress Engelman with his knowledge of explosives. So, on September 26, 1963, Fry and Engelman met at the drag strip and planted the dynamite in the well. Fry wired the charges and stepped back from the hole, pleased with his work. But As he looked down at the detonator button in his hand, preparing to set off the dynamite, Engelman hit him over the head with a large rock. Stunned, Fry turned around in horror to find Engelman holding his makeshift weapon. As Fry caught on to what was happening, he allegedly screamed at his employer, Why? Why do you want to kill me? But Fry was slurring, and a gurgling
1: came from his throat. It seems clear that he suffered a traumatic brain injury from the blunt force trauma of a rock to the head. Traumatic brain injury is characterized by physical damage to the brain caused by an external force. This damage usually manifests as bruising, bleeding, and torn tissue. It also makes sense that Frey was slurring his speech and making gurgling sounds as acute traumatic brain injuries have been known to cause dysarthria, a condition that impairs the tongue, larynx, and coordination of the muscles that control vocalization. This kind of injury can often be fatal, and death would likely be caused by a brain hemorrhage or bleeding in the brain. Surviving this kind of trauma is also likely, depending on the severity of the damage. Though he was stunned by the blow to the head, Fry was still alive.
0: But Engelmann was quick to finish the job. According to one account, Engelman shoved Fry into the hole, then hurried away, pulling out a second detonator. Then he pressed the button. Within seconds, the dynamite exploded and the well collapsed. Several tons of dirt and debris buried Fry, who at that point
1: might have still been alive. Being buried alive is a horrifying thought. One major cause of death from this would be suffocation. When someone gets completely covered by debris and soil, they're unable to move, and the pressure from the surrounding dirt on their body can be immense. The weight of this amount of dirt covering them compresses their chest, which renders respiration impossible. And to clarify, the soil would basically get inhaled causing obstructions in the air passages of the nose and mouth, making breathing even more impossible. Without any oxygen entering his lungs, Frey would have most likely been dead within a few minutes. The blast
0: made it look as though Frey had blown himself up in a terrible accident. Then, without a second thought, Engelman launched into theatrics, hollering for help at the top of his lungs, He screamed Eric Fry's name over and over, feigning shock, then demanded, ''Someone get to a phone and call an ambulance. It looks like Eric's dead.'' But on the inside, Engelman grinned. There were several witnesses at the drag strip that day, including Sandy, but it seems nobody told the sheriff anything suspicious when he arrived on the scene. So, he ruled Fry's death an obvious accident and didn't even bother filing a report. When Fry's body was pulled out of the well, his widow Sandy requested that no autopsy be performed. Following Engelman's advice, she had her husband cremated immediately, so nobody looked too closely at his head wound. But even with the body accounted for, Sandy's work was far from over. The night of the bombing, she called her insurance agent and reported Fry's accidental death, then promptly asked when she could collect her $25,000 check. The insurance agent was shocked to hear from a widow on the day her husband died, especially considering their wedding anniversary was only days away. In another twist of fate, it was the insurance company that did the most thorough investigation of Fry's death, and nearly uncovered the plot. They initially refused to pay out the claim as they scrutinized the relationships between Sandy, Fry, and Engelman. The lead insurance agent on the case was rumored to have an entire filing cabinet devoted to the strange cast of characters. Unfortunately, when the insurance lawyers showed their files to various law enforcement agencies, none of them pursued the tip on Engelman. Eventually, Sandy sued the insurance company to get her payout, and they were forced to cough up the cash from Fry's policy. Of the $25,000, Sandy gave $16,000 to Engelman. The cheque she wrote him was labelled as an investment in his drag strip. But within a year, Engelman's racing arena went bankrupt. It seemed Engelman had something else to invest his money in. Just months after the money from Fry's death came in, Sandy gave birth to a little girl. At the urging of Engelman's wife, Ida, who had deep suspicions of her husband and niece's relationship, Sandy moved several states away to live with her grandmother. But out of sight was not out of mind for Glennon Engelman. The child that was likely his may have been his primary reason for killing Fry and collecting on the insurance payout. He justified his violent crimes, believing they were helping the people he loved most. First, it was his ex-wife Ruthie. Next, it was Sandy and the baby. And, just like his first murder, the threat of an incriminating police investigation never came. With the drag strip closed and Sandy gone, everybody soon forgot about Eric Fry's death. Engelman settled into the routine of his dental practice once more, taking a temporary reprieve from his criminal life. It would be over a decade until Engelman decided to kill again, and his next murder would be more complex than any he'd previously committed. But just like his first two... The scheme would require a female accomplice. Up next, Engelman enlists one of his employees in a long-term murder plot. Now back to the story. By 1976, 49-year-old Glennon Engelman had churned through a series of wives, mistresses, questionable investments, and a pair of murders. He moved through his personal life quickly and without regret. His marriage to Ida ended in 1965 when Engelman threw her out of his house, and his affair with Ida's niece, Sandy, ceased roughly around that same year, despite the fact that she'd borne his child. It's possible that their joint murder scheme soured the romance. But Engelman wasn't a single man for long. In 1967, immediately after his second divorce was finalized, Engelman married one of his longtime mistresses, Ruth. She shared a name with Engelman's first bride, Ruthie, but the two marriages unfolded far differently. This time, Engelman moved into an apartment with wife number three, finally leaving his mother's house. And it was good timing, since his mother passed away a few years later. But like many other women in Engelman's life, Ruth left the picture as quickly as she had entered it. It seemed she discovered Engelman was a murderer, but his charisma and frightening temper kept her from going to the police. This was a repeated pattern among the women Engelman courted and used. Their complacency and fearful subordination seemed to feed into Engelman's sense of superiority. As a middle-aged white professional who could literally get away with murder, Engelman was the smartest man he knew. But unfortunately, his self satisfaction couldn't make him a good dentist. He'd been able to grow a decent client base, but his low prices couldn't sustain the company long term. Even worse, Engelman sometimes had to eat the cost of procedures when he screwed up on impressions and x rays the first time around. By 1976, Engelman was behind on his taxes. He quickly run up debts with his dental laboratory, his bank, and the Internal Revenue Service. If he'd simply focused on his dental practice and paid his bills on time, he'd have made plenty of money. But Engelman remained enticed by the thrill of murder and the quick payout that followed. And this time, his financial crisis was enough to get him plotting. Engelmann was ready to commit his next crime. And he wanted to be sure it would be his most profitable murder yet. There was just one problem. Engelmann didn't have a relationship to use for his gain. With his earlier murders, Engelmann's female accomplices had been his ex-wife and his girlfriend. Since the insurance schemes had worked so well before, Engelman decided to find a suitable victim and lure them in. All he needed was bait. So he turned to his 24-year-old dental assistant, Carmen. It was an easy sell. Carmen felt like she owed Engelman. She was one of the youngest children of the Miranda family who had lodged with Engelman and his mother during the 50s and 60s. Over the years, Engelman had employed several of the Miranda children, both at the drag racing business and his dental practice. But apparently, Carmen was the only one of her siblings who kept working for Engelman in St. Louis. To Engelman, this meant that Carmen had stayed loyal. But above all, they shared a secret. Engelman had given Carmen an abortion in the dental chair
1: of his own practice. Engelman's medical knowledge in the realm of abortion was self-taught. However, as a dentist, he actually had quite a bit of resource at his disposal to perform a jerry-rigged abortion on Carmen. This is especially true of suction abortions, which are the most common form of this procedure. This is where the embryo or fetus is vacuumed or extracted from the womb through the vaginal canal via the cervix that leads to the uterus. Engelman likely had access to laminarias, small sticks that can be placed into the cervix prior to an abortion that would dilate the cervix in order to facilitate this procedure. He definitely had his own powerful suction devices used for dentistry, along with assorted surgical tools that could have all been used to remove Carmen's pregnancy. He had sedating chemicals to work with as well, like nitrous oxide, and sedation is common and usually necessary during these invasive procedures. As a medical professional, it would have been relatively easy for Engelmann to seek out and obtain any other instruments or devices to help his cause, like a speculum that's used to expand the vaginal opening. In addition, Engelmann had access to painkillers and would have been able to ease any post-operative discomfort Carmen was experiencing if he was in fact caring enough to offer it. Engelman's lack of understanding and training in this department is definitely concerning, and presented great danger to Carmen. There was a major risk that he could have inserted the operating tools improperly, which can lead to deadly conditions like sepsis, internal bleeding, and internal organ damage. And this risk factor certainly played out. His makeshift abortion procedure nearly killed Carmen. Carmen
0: almost bled to death and had to be hospitalized, but she hadn't felt prepared to support a baby, and she felt appreciative that Engelman had helped her through such a traumatic experience. She also liked that Engelman respected her repeated rejection when he attempted to make sexual advances. After all of this, Carmen felt like she owed him something, And Engelman preyed on this sense of obligation by roping her in to his budding scheme. She would soon become the first accomplice that Engelman never had a sexual relationship with. It helped that Carmen wasn't making a lot of money. When Engelman had pitched the plot to her by early 1975, she felt enticed by the opportunity to make fast cash. And Engelman made the whole ordeal seem easy. He told her all they had to do was find her a husband who was a working man with good corporate benefits. He also had to be healthy but not well connected. They needed a man whose death wouldn't raise questions. So Carmen selected her target. The suitable man ended up being 26-year-old Peter Helm, a telephone lineman. Carmen had dated him in high school and they'd recently reconnected. Engelman approved. By October of 1975, the couple was married and like Engelman had advised, Carmen took out the highest paying life insurance policy on Helm she could find. But Engelmann's plot was soon complicated. Carmen came to him with second thoughts about killing Helm, but Engelmann wouldn't hear it. Enraged, he threatened to kill Carmen's brother if she didn't comply. He even hinted that Carmen might end up hurt too. So she cowered to his intimidation, and once she agreed to the murder again, Engelman calmed down. He set the murder date for September 5, 1976, and told Carmen to take her husband for a nice long hike that day. Carmen and Peter Helm arrived at the predetermined trail and walked toward a distant complex of caves miles from the nearest road. A few miles in, Helm was tired and wanted to turn around, but Carmen urged him forward. At one point, they stopped, seeing beer cans hanging from the trees along the trail. Carmen noticed that several cans had bullet holes in them as though somebody had used them for target practice or setting the range on a rifle scope. Halm noticed the cans too, just seconds before a bullet
1: plowed into his back, just below his neck. The shot struck Halm along the spine between his upper back and neck. A gunshot directly into the upper thoracic spinal column would have completely paralyzed Halm's body below the bullet's entry point. This would cause him to lose muscle control and the ability to breathe and also sever the cardiac nerves needed for normal heart functioning. If the extent of the damage was a bullet lodged in his spinal column, Hom would have been dead in minutes without intervention. However, because of the power behind the rifle shot, the bullet almost certainly penetrated deeper than his spine. It's more likely that Hom was instantly killed by the bullet going directly into his heart Lungs, and or the aorta.
0: Helm face-planted into the dirt. Carmen screamed. Moments later, Engelmann emerged from the trees, carrying a rifle. He grabbed Carmen and told her to stop screaming, but she was hysterical. Another group of hikers was approaching, so Engelman fled from the scene. Helm's murder didn't immediately raise suspicion in relation to Engelmann, The scene looked like Carmen and Helm had interrupted a drug deal or some other transient crime, and all Carmen said was that someone had surprised them and shot her husband. The sheriff declared an open and shut case, and newspapers were more than happy to blame the murder on an unknown assailant. After all, it was just a telephone lineman in the wrong place at the wrong time. Not much of a story. But the murder would define the rest of Carmen's life. In the weeks and months that followed Helm's murder, she sunk into a deep depression and suffered from suicidal ideation.
1: Witnessing the death of a loved one is extremely difficult, and the added feeling of responsibility for that death is almost unimaginable. An event this awful can trigger post-traumatic stress, and the emotional damage involved in a situation like this can affect all levels of functioning, including sleep patterns, cognition, and memory. In addition, and in relation to this, Carmen was experiencing situational depression, or an intensely sunken mood provoked by an acute, tragic, and highly upsetting set of events. A situational depression is different from a depression that is chronic. And responds better to talk therapy than conventional antidepressant drugs. Carmen's suicidal thoughts were a more serious form of depression and would have required medication coupled with talk therapy. It's likely that Carmen had a pre existing imbalance of serotonin that pushed her from a situational depression into thoughts of suicide. Having an imbalance in this neurotransmitter predisposes people to rumination and obsessive thinking which makes any bout of a situational depression far more severe. In essence, her underlying neurochemistry probably made awful circumstances even worse. Carmen was understandably unable to cope with her feelings, and this experience affected her to the point that it required hospitalization. While Carmen was hospitalized for her depression, her family
0: helped care for her, but Engelmann spared her no sympathy. As far as he was concerned, he and Carmen shared the dark secrets of her abortion and murder. He called their relationship homicidally intimate. And Engelman believed that entitled him to $10,000. Though Helms' life insurance had been valued at nearly $75,000, Engelman was more concerned with getting a smaller cut faster, enough to settle his tax bill. So... He was persistent with Carmen, but she grew increasingly difficult to reach. Her brother Nick took over the insurance collection, but it wasn't long before he realised Engelman's knowledge about Helm's policy was more than just suspicious. He remembered that Engelman had been around when that terrible freak accident at the drag racing strip had killed Eric Fry. The more Nick thought about it, the more he suspected foul play. Soon... It dawned on him. His sister's ex-boss wasn't just involved in Carmen's life. By the looks of it, Engelman seemed to be involved in her husband's death. Nick didn't want to risk his own life saying no to Engelman's cash demands. So the moment the insurance check came in, he paid Engelman his cut. And as Engelman grabbed his cash, he quickly confirmed Nick's dark suspicions. Engelman said, Your brother-in-law was a hard man to kill. He had outright admitted to murdering Carmen's husband, Peter Helm. Engelmann's loose lips were likely the result of his growing self-righteousness. His insurance schemes had worked three times now, and he was still free. So he saw himself almost as a demigod, untouchable by the laws of man, and this hubris would soon lead him to his next plot. One that would up the ante. Why kill one person at a time for insurance when he could murder three people for their entire life savings? Next time on Medical Murders, egomaniac dentist Glennon Engelman schemes to kill an entire family. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thanks so much, Alistair. For more information on Glennon Engelman, among the many sources we used, we found the book Appointment for Murder by Susan Crane Bakos extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Kristen Acevedo, Jonathan Cohen, Alexandra Chikvedortir, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.